Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. My name is Josh Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Clay Maynard. We're two guys committed to the centrality of the gospel, and we want to see our brothers and sisters captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ. Thank you guys so much for tuning in tonight. And I just wanted to take a quick moment and remind you about our red circle that we set up a couple months ago. Uh, It's a place where you can go and uh, partner with us here at the Young Baptist Podcast to try and help offset some of the costs that goes with uh, hosting a podcast like this. Uh, We just want to let you guys know if you set up a recurring donation of at least $5 a month, we have a special gift that we want to send you as a thank you for supporting the show. Uh, because that would mean the world to us if you helped out in that way. Absolutely, Josh. And you can find out about that and a lot of other things on our website and our social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, it's at Young Baptist Pod. On Facebook, we are the Young Baptist Podcast. You can email us at theyoungbaptistpodcast at gmail.com. And our website is www.theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. We also have a merch store. So if that's another way, if you want to support the podcast, we've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got tumblers, we've got other stuff on there. Help yourself to see what's on there and order something so that you can support the podcast and also at the same time, um, have some merch to represent your favorite podcast. So what we want to do this episode is answer one of the questions that some of you have been asking, which is where do Josh and I disagree? We have not really disagreed on deep doctrinal issues, but there are practical issues that we sometimes are shades different on. So what we're going to do is take a few topics tonight. Josh is going to take one position. I'm going to take the opposite position. We're going to spend two minutes each giving what we think are the best arguments for those positions. And then we're going to spend the following five minutes fleshing out the details and coming to some uh, reasonable middle, hopefully, <laughs> on those topics. And I'm sure we're going to find some areas where we disagree, but that'll be the fun of this. Kind of a la Elephant Room, if you saw those that YouTube series a few years ago done by some pastors. Um, that's kind of the same idea as what we're going to do here tonight. Josh, you ready for this? Let's do this thing, Clive. It's the Young Baptist Showdown, part one. You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. With our very first question, we're gonna answer this. When it comes to Christian concerts, are they venues of worship? Or are they strictly entertainment? Clay, your time starts now. Josh, I take the position that these are worship. When you read the scripture, it does not make a distinction between some things that are worship and some things that are not worship for the Christian. The New Testament repeatedly says that everything you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It says, whatsoever our hands find to do, we do it with all our might. And we do it to the glory of God. When I go to work in the morning, it is in worship to God. When I read the Bible to my family, that's in worship to God. When I'm eating dinner with my family, when I'm kicking a ball in the backyard with my children, I'm doing it in worship to God. There's not this big divide between secular and sacred the way that we see it played out in a lot of churches. This this is of the world and this is of God. I know that some things are sinful. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that are not sinful. 
even recreation can be used in worship. So everything is worship in a sense. Now, I think what we're asking here when we ask about Christian concerts is, is this a worship service of the gathered church? If that's what we're asking, then no. But is it a worship service? I believe anytime the body of Christ is gathered together, they're lifting their voices, singing songs of praise to God. We got to be very careful to look at a group of people and say, that's not worship. That's just entertainment. And if you don't believe me, go to a Shane and Shane concert. I cede the rest of my time. All right, Josh, your turn. Two minutes, go. So Christian concerts, are they worship or entertainment? Well, I think it's entertainment, Clay, because, well, for a few reasons. Um, Really, first of all, it's not an actual proper gathering of the church, as so many musicians would say, like, let's worship together, church. So I think it's wrong for them to call that it is the church gathered there to worship. Um, I think that the setting of a concert itself leads it, you know, kind of gives itself to a less worshipful atmosphere and more of like this uh, excited party vibe, which, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but um, worship is meant to be intentional. And a lot of times, and I don't know what concert venues you've been in, but in the ones I've been to, it's been maybe a little less structured and a lot more get excited, get on your feet. And it's entertainment in that way because the entire show is set up in a way to get your emotions stirred up, to get your emotions like in the moment, to make you, to, to think about a Southern gospel concert. I mean, they set up the, the songs, they put those songs in certain ways so that by the time they get to this one song about grandma who has gone on to heaven, you're in tears because they just have gone straight to the emotions. I think it's more of an emotional time. Um, to stir up the the feelings that you have to get you in your feelings. Is that necessarily wrong? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's wrong for it to be entertainment, but um, it's not, it's not an organized structured time of worship in, in that way. I also cede the rest of my time, all 10 seconds of it. <laughs> all right. So now we're going to take five minutes and flesh this out. Let's go. Josh, I think you made a really great point when you said that it is not the gathered church. You referred to musicians saying, sing it out church or something like that, and that it can send the message that this is a local gathering of the church. And I think there you have to be able to define what is meant by the church. Is it, it, is the the church limited to just a local, um, a local representation of that, or can we use it in the broader, more universal sense? Yeah. Are there expressions of the universal church that can happen outside of the context yes. of the local church? That's a good way to put it. And and I think there there can be, and I and I do believe that's what most Christian musicians are say are trying to say when they say yeah when they refer to that group as a, as the church. Yeah, because they're, they're not gonna they're not gonna baptize. They're not gonna take the Lord's supper. There's no ordinances yeah, happening. Nor there. should they. Right. <laughs> that could be a that could be a mess. Even these big. Um, crusades that you'll see some preachers do they they the ones that do it well they bring a lot of local churches in for that evangelistic outreach and then as people profess faith in christ they push those people to the local churches yep so that it can be a proper um they can do a proper introduction into what being a disciple of christ is and leading them in next steps so i think i think the concern you're had you're you were you were discussing there was what do you do when you 
do you send the wrong message unintentionally when you just say church? Right. And are we sending the wrong, if we're saying it's worship, are we sending the wrong message? Are we sending the message that they went to church if they came here? I think with, is that what you're, I think if you're an immature, immature believer, that may be something you think about that crosses your mind. I think as you, but that's easily solved by asking a question. Like, okay, I was at a concert last night and, you know, Mac Powell from third, third day was like, Hey church, let's sing. Why did he call us the church? Like that's easily, that's easily fixed. I just want to say here too, Clay, I like what you said about worship being in everything that we do. It's not just limited to, to, you know, the song service at church and that, um, especially the distinction you made between the sacred and the secular. I think that is something that we have maybe heard a lot of, but it's not biblical. It's not much biblical let, proof And of let that. me ask you this and, and see what you think of this, because I think one of the distinctions that we were both toying at, but didn't really land on was this idea that the focus, you, you mentioned it in your comments, that the focus of concerts is to drive an experience. Right. And to sometimes drive emotion, to, to seek moments in the concert where your feelings you know, are, 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 are very engaged and it's, and it's, and it's a, it's a great time to be had. And I can agree. So is, is the question for me is if that's the goal, if, if, is that the primary goal or is that the secondary goal? Well, then we won't be able to answer that. Right. I think that varies from concert to concert. Yeah. But that to me is more, is an interesting way to distinguish between, is it a worship environment or is it just entertainment? Well, and you brought up Shane and Shane, which is so perfect because it, if it wasn't obvious from the very moment that whole thing started, um, you figured it out real quick into that concert. We weren't there just to have a good time with one another. This was this was like we yes. were that we was were a, praising the name. When of people our Savior. talk about the night of the nights of worship, that was a night of that worship. That was it. Yeah. And the thing too, I think that we have to remember is there are probably things on if you went to. A, 12 different Christian concerts, you'd find people all along this spectrum where some of them you'll feel like, hey, that was just mainly so people could have fun and it incorporated elements of Christian worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It incorporated the, the music from Christian worship, but the focus was entertainment. And then you would probably go to other ones where you'd say, hey, there were moments where it was entertaining, but the that focus was, was worship, the worship yeah. of Christ. I think what capped it off at the Shane and Shane concert was the very end. And I've, I've thought about this a lot in the last several days. They ended where we sang, um, uh, oh, what did we sing? Oh, come let us adore him, uh, for he alone is worthy. And then to him be all the glory. And I don't know if you picked up on this there, but they walked off the stage when we were singing that. Oh yeah, the congregation was just singing. And together. the congregation sang. They they took the whole entire focus off of off of anything they could have done. And the last thing that we did was sing directly yeah, to there our was Savior. No, there was no leader up there. We were just singing that song together yeah. as a congregation. Yeah, yeah. So I and I think that's a that's a great example of it actually being a time of worship and not just a time of entertainment. Yeah. Cause I, and cause I do think these things can bleed over somewhat. There can yeah. be, there I think can there's be, overlap. There can be entertain. I mean, I, everybody's gone to church where it was a little bit entertaining at times, right? Does the pastor tell jokes? Does the, yeah. is there anything funny that happens? It can be entertaining, but it can also be worshipful. I don't think we have to choose between the two. I think by and large Christian people though, go to these places f- with the hope that they can worship God yeah. Um, with other like-minded believers. Well, that's our time, Clay. We, we, we went over on that one. That's okay. Question number two, Josh. 
What is the role of emotion in church services? Should we embrace them or should we avoid them? Well, I'm going to take the position that we should avoid them in singing and preaching in in our church services because our emotions aren't what is meant to guide us. The truth is. And I think as humans, it's our tendency to let our emotions just spiral out of control and get ridiculous. And so it's important that when we come into the into the church, into the gathering of the church, that our emotions are are grounded, but that truth triumphs over our emotions. They, I don't. Uh, I think there's room for like emotional appeal and preaching and singing, but I don't think it should be the root of everything that we do. Because when we come to church, as Alistair Begg sort of said, we're not to be asked how we feel, but to be reminded of what we know. That's what we're there for. To be reminded of the truth of who God is and what God has done and, and who our savior is. And if we lean too heavy on emotion, uh, there's the potential that th- there's, there's some potential pitfalls in that, but one that I'm, uh, and you may have seen before as well that I have seen is that sometimes we unintentionally mistake that like, Oh, well God was moving in that service because there was an emotional response and we can unintentionally say, well, the, and mistake the moving of the spirit of God with say a teary eye or a clapping hand or a shout of praise uh, because we've not, we've not anchored our emotion in the truth. So should emotion have a large role in the church service? I, I say avoid or embrace. Maybe we should try to avoid it. Josh, I think we should embrace emotion. And when I say embrace emotion, I don't mean give into emotion as our guide, but to deny a part of the way God made us is to deny part of the image of God in us. I don't believe we have to choose between truth and emotion when we're in church. I do see the concern from the other side when they say, oh, we have to be careful because we don't want church services driven by emotionalism. And I know this dovetails kind of nicely with our last topic because oftentimes it's worship environments that are seeking to capitalize on emotion. If I feel God's like God was there, if a song touched me, that was the Holy Spirit. And, and there's that drive in some of these environments to create moments and to capitalize on emotions. That's obviously a problem. But I don't believe there's that the, that we have to take the opposite approach and say, oh, let's forget about emotions. That has no place here. We don't have to avoid them. We just don't let them lead. And I, I'm sensing a lot of agreement with what we're saying. We're just kind of coming at it from two different angles, obviously with the caricature of these positions. But we don't have to reject that part of us. There is no dichotomy. Uh, Kerry Schmidt says this. There's no dichotomy between the worship of Christ and the joy in the heart of the believer. There's no dichotomy between those two things. If we were made to worship God, then engaging in those in that worship should produce a good reaction in us. It should engage us at an emotional level. The Bible says we have a high priest which has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. If God feels our pain, he certainly shares in our joys. And I don't believe we have to choose. I believe we can embrace emotion while holding to the truth. Yeah, I wanted to to throw out there, Clay, with this particular topic, this one was really hard for me to uh, have to take the avoid, to take position. The avoid position because I don't necessarily 
believe that fully that we should avoid it altogether. Yeah. Um, now I think maybe a couple of years ago, I probably would have been a little bit easier, hardcore on it. Yeah. But I do, I agree, I agree. You, me and you have talked about what, what Carrie Schmidt said that one time. I agree that there's this dichotomy that doesn't exist. Well, I, don't you think Josh, this is one of those examples where in, or we see an error and in reacting to the error, sometimes we overcorrect. I, I feel this way about the dating, the, the sexual revolution that led to the sleeping around dating scene that occurred. Our parents grew up in that environment. The ones who weren't engaged in it, remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, it's only bled over. I mean, the, the, the college scenes in America today are crazy. Well, what is, then you see this, this generation, the I kiss dating goodbye right, resurgence, yeah. which was a response to the world and their shifting uh, moral paradigms around sex and around marriage. Well, I think some, in some cases you had a lot of people going way too far, like where our great grandparents actually had something that worked really well and there was accountability and there was parental involvement and there was carefulness and there was character being taught because we saw the world running into one direction. You had a lot of other people running into the other complete other ditch and it just caused other problems. Yeah, And the truth is with emotionalism. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true here. What we're seeing is we do see a shift towards feelings based church services. And so the reaction can be, forget your feelings. We're just going to preach that. We're just going to say the truth. The truth is, is the most important thing. It absolutely is. It has to be anchored in God's word, but we don't have to squash emotion. And I think there should, church should be a place where the heart of a worshiper should feel free to express that worship. You should feel free to raise your hands. You should feel free to cry. You should be feel free to clap your hands or say amen or, or enjoy in that worship. Now you don't judge the experience based on that. You don't go home and say, Oh, church was terrible today because the worship team did not give me enough. Or I didn't cry. Right. I didn't cry. There was no moving uh, musical sequence. The, yeah. the music didn't move me. That's, that's a terrible way to judge your church services. Um, and so we agree with that. Don't let emotions lead, but let's not overcorrect to what the culture is doing and go into the other ditch yeah, with us. Truth, truth, triumph, truth trumps emotions, but it does not, it does not hide emotions either. Like you can have truth and emotion at the same time. Yeah. Emotion follow the truth. Yes. It, but, and it's like you said, it's all, I think it's been an overreaction because it seems like in some instances, the emotion is leading the truth where the truth should be leading the emotion. Yeah. Well, and, and we, we can't do that. Scripture is filled with sensory language, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, there, th- that stuff is in scripture that we're supposed to actually experience a joyful relationship with Christ. And, and on, and on that note, you have, I forgot what I was going to say there. I'm sorry. Did you want to say something? Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say if, if literally if truth embodied came to this earth and like stood in front of Lazarus's tomb and wept, like we should probably look at our own experiences in church and think, okay, it's okay. Well, it's, okay it's okay to, to have, have that. to have emotion. You referenced the Alistair Begg quote where he says, yes. don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. But I like how he ends that quote because he goes back to say, and says, let your emotions follow the truth. In other words, yeah. don't lead with emotion, lead with the truth. And I've experienced this and I think you have too probably. You come in not feeling it on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And if as it's Alistair just, Begg says, barely ambulatory. <laughs> <laughs> 
in, in a way that only Alistair Begg can describe that Sunday morning yeah. scene. You should watch that clip if you haven't. But he, but you do. You've come to church and you're not in a good place. And just focusing on feelings is a terrible way to do things. It's carnal. It focuses on your flesh. Whereas if you step back from that and say, what's the truth? And you start singing and you start, you, whether it's baptism or partaking of the Lord's Supper or or reading scripture together or praying together or singing singing hymns and spiritual songs together and hearing preaching as that truth surrounds you and comes out of your own mouth and you're hearing it and you're reminding yourself of it how many times has that completely changed your emotional state yeah the the important thing was that the emotions followed the truth and not the other way around we yeah. didn't judge the experience based on the emotion well that's time so good work good stuff good work all right the next topic at hand clay when it comes to reading and authors that we read after, particularly authors that we don't necessarily agree with on everything, should you read it or should you burn it? Josh, I am going to take the burn it position for today's conversation. I think we have to be very careful who we're being discipled by. You know, we live in a day where the social media and you talked about books where the joke is book burning, right? Burn it or read it. But it's, it's, it's spread so much further than books. It's constantly around us. Churches now are trying to compete with sources of input into their members' lives from all over the place. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen go to YouTube and go to podcasts and go other places, not necessarily because those things are wrong, but to the exclusion of their local church leaders. They're not being discipled by the brethren in their local context, people who know them, people who can help them apply the truths of God's word. No, they're seeking other sources, people who don't know them, people who have not ministered to them. Paul says to the New Testament, he says, you saw what manner of men we were among you. You saw our going in and coming out. You saw who we were. What he's saying there is you should be discipled by people who have proved that they back up what they believe by the way that they live. That's not YouTube. That's not other. It's nothing wrong with having some of those inputs. But I, in general, I think you need to be careful about the sources that you're listening to. And certainly, at the very least, they need to have a very miniature role in your life compared to reading God's word for yourself, reading people who are, who are solid on, on these important essentials of doctrine and learning directly from your local church. I think that should be the focus for Christians. I think we'll be a lot better off if we're being discipled in our local churches in that way, rather than running to the ends of the earth looking for what new thing is being said by the, by the, or, or what's trending on Twitter and YouTube because of some famous pastor who's got a, a hundred thousand dollar media team. All right. I'm just going hard, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clay, when it comes to books, I say you should read it. You should read it. Cause as a, as a friend of mine, uh, you may have heard of him, Clay, JC Groves. He once said, truth never fears a challenge. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> sorry. The truth of the matter is, if if you believe something, what you read should do a couple of things to it. The things that you read should either help you shore up what you believe, it should either help you gain a greater understanding of what you believe, or it may expose that what you believe wasn't actually accurate in the first place. Furthermore, we're called to, to engage with people in the church, outside of the church, whatever. If we read after people we don't agree with, 
eye to eye and it helps us understand their position. It helps us to understand how other people think. It gives us a better understanding of other people in general. And you can't present good arguments without having an understanding of the other arguments. So to to be afraid of reading after someone that doesn't believe, you know, every jot and tittle exactly like you do, well, you're gonna you're gonna sequester yourself from from a ton of information that could make you a better person, that could help you grow, and that could give you a stronger defense for why you believe what you believe. Or maybe it'll humble you enough to say, well, maybe what I what I viewed as dogmatic in this area, I shouldn't be dogmatic on that anymore. I should I should give some some grace on that. I think what it I think reading widely helps us grow deeper into truth and it gives us more tools to defend what we believe. So yeah, read it or burn it, read that piece. <laughs> Josh, you made a really good uh you made a really good case for that. This was the topic that I had the most difficult time taking the burn it position. Uh primarily because I think a lot of what you said is true. Um, I do think a lot of what I said is true, though. I agree well. with what you said. Yeah. I, I think there's nuance between these two, b- between both of these arguments. These are obviously the best arguments we feel from both sides. Go ahead. It's just really hard to argue from the Burnett position, from the position of only read after people that agree with everything you believe. That's a very hard place to argue from because, well, one you're going to read like six books in your entire life. (laughs) (laughs) That if we're lucky. Yeah. I can find six people who agree with me. So I can understand how that would be difficult for you to take that position. But no, I agree with what you're saying about where you're getting your material from. Yeah. And I, there's a balance between these two things. The one thing I would say is when you're, I believe the balance is struck where, when you're pursuing new material, being very careful. Yeah. And then, and then as you interact with that material, keep it grounded from the broader base of sound doctrine that you're engaging in. So I guess I would put it this way. If you're going to listen to a YouTube video from somebody you don't know, so you don't, you, you don't know whether you can trust them, you don't know if they're, whether they're sound doctrinally, listen to them with an open mind, but don't let that be overbalancing your other recognized, trusted sources of input. The Bible itself, first and foremost, in your local church, your local church, and people that you've learned to trust. Now, all those sources could be wrong, except for God's word. <laughs> they could. Mm-hmm. But take those, if you encounter something new and you think it makes a good point, take it to those sources. Take it to your pastor and ask him for his answer. Hopefully, he's humble enough that if he doesn't have a good answer, he'll say, hey, I don't have a good answer for that. That's maybe something I need to read more about. That's something I need to study more. But the, one of the points that you made that I thought was was awesome was that it strengthens your faith to read people who disagree with you. Somebody, somebody that's scared of hearing an opposing view is somebody who has a weak position. Yeah. And if whether they know it or not, they might not know they have a weak position. They just learned, have learned to sequester themselves. But they do have a weak position. And they might even know they have a weak position. I've, I've met people who literally don't want to have certain conversations. They will shut down the conversation. Oh, no, I'm not even going to talk about that. We're not talking about that. And it's because they know their position's weak so they have to run from the conversation. That is not a good environment to be in. You, if we're going to earnestly contend for the faith, who are we contending against? We're contending against somebody 
who's approaching us with falsehood. So we have to be, as you said, we have to be willing to engage with culture. But I think the other side of it, there is an extreme with that. And that's what I was arguing against, which is don't allow yourself to be, to be blown about with every wind of doctrine like a leaf every time the wind blows. You know, this week you're listening to John MacArthur and then next week you're, you're, you're binging Stephen Furtick and the next week oh, you're... Oh, good grief. <laughs> I'm just you. You've, we've known people who do that, and if you're just going to look for, uh, if you're just going to compare who's mesmerizing, who's interesting, whatever, you're going to be all over the place. So, bring in new information, but I think you need to adopt it carefully and examining first and foremost and last most <laughs> scripture. Compare it to the scripture. Take it to the scripture. Try the spirits whether they're of God. Ask God to guide you. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. And if it disagrees with something you've been taught. Maybe it disagrees with something your local church is teaching and you think it makes a good point. Take it to your pastor. Take it to your local people who, by the way, you're getting discipled by. If you're not getting discipled by, I mean, Josh, you and I have both seen this. You're bringing stuff in. You're not showing up for your small groups. You're not showing up for Sunday school. You're not showing up for discipleship. You're not engaged. You're not submitted to your local church, but you want to bring all this junk in and reprove and rebuke the leaders of your church. Well, you're not very spiritual. Mm. You're very, very immature. <laughs> You're what scripture would call a novice. Take in new information slowly. And if you think it makes valid points, bring it to your local leaders and see if they're willing to engage with it. And that should give you a good indicator of whether or not there's truth to it. This reminds me of a story I heard one time about two preachers. They they went to the city um, kind of overnight and they, they it, were invited to speak the next morning. And they spoke and they preached and the people that they preached to heard what they had to say. They went home and they searched the scriptures. (laughs) You know why? They wanted to see whether or not those things were so. Yep. Happens to be that was something that happened in the New Testament. Yep. That we need to practice today. And the guy they were checking... The Apostle, the Apostle Paul. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read him this morning? Probably. <laughs> hey, on that note, Josh, check check even the things your pastor says by the scriptures. And if you have questions, take it to him. Yep. Take it to him. That's, That's our his... time. We got to leave it there. All right. Josh, question number four. Technology, is it a tool or a trap? Well, Clay, when it comes to technology, whether it's a tool or a trap, as Admiral Akbar says... It's a trap. (laughs) Technology is a trap, Clay. Technology is a trap because it's brand new. We don't know anything about it. That sounds very much like a joke, but seriously, it is really brand new and nobody knows anything about it. Um, Why is technology a trap? Well, technology, it can open a lot of doors to things that you don't really want to get involved in. Uh, And, Unfortunately, technology can also be a major time waster. I know this is something that I obviously probably struggle with is technology just draining time. You know, this little bird site, it's a, it's a time killer technology. That part of technology, definitely a trap. Um, technology is, uh, I used to think it was inadvertently and in some ways it is inadvertent. In some ways, I think it may be on purpose, but technology is inadvertently replacing a lot of good things in our lives, like face-to-face interaction. I mean, there's a whole generation who'd rather text and um, um, Snapgram or whatever it's called instead of actually talk one face-to-face. A couple other things that's changing, and 
I'm having a hard time with this without being a complete moron, but, uh, you know, technology is replacing our hard copy Bibles. It's removing hymnals out of our church. Uh, you know, it's, it's horrible, but technology also has the potential to seriously undermine our mission as a church to reach people because of a desire to stay up to date and relevant and cool and like in with all the technology, it can distract us from what is most important. And that is chasing after souls and the kingdom of God. So technology, it's a trap. Josh, technology is a tool. And yes, it has its dangers, but that doesn't mean we reject it altogether. And I know you're not saying we reject it altogether, but if we primarily see it for its shortcomings, then it's just going to be something that we fear and therefore we don't utilize. Whereas if we see it for its benefits, we can build in safeguards for its shortcomings. Every single technology that's ever come around, there's been a period of time where people were saying, oh, we can't use that. We shouldn't use that. That's dangerous. That's just going to distract. That's just going to cause harm. That's just going to um, destroy something good. And then over time, it becomes realized, hey, we, we need to get on board with this, right? And just like every technology, it does need to be regulated. It does need to be taken care with. But that's true of any tool. A hammer is a tool. You can't just do anything with a hammer. You'll hurt yourself. A drill is a tool. You can't just do anything with a drill. It'll cause a lot of damage. And so just like every other tool, technology should be thought of the same way. Do you use it for everything? No. If you use a tool for the wrong application, you can cause damage. You can hurt things. And if we're using social media for the wrong things, then we can, we can destroy something. We can hurt something. We can cause problems. But that's not, that doesn't, that's not a reason to say, oh, Facebook shouldn't be used. Uh, live streaming shouldn't be used. Uh, techno technological advancement shouldn't be used. We shouldn't be social media promoting. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't do anything that. People are on social media. People are using technology. It's a medium. It's a method. Methods change. Methods always change. Methods are many, principles are few. Methods are always changing. Principles never do. So we don't change our principles, but we should be willing to update our methods because methods are the way we reach people. Paul was willing to go where the people were. He didn't have technology, but he went to the synagogue. Why? That's where they were. And Facebook is where they are. Social media technology is where the people are. We should be willing to use it to reach them. Clay, this is another one that was hard for me to seriously caricature because <clears throat> a lot of the negative arguments for technology being a track are just stupid. Like, I don't, maybe we should have switched positions on this one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I do think technology can be both. It, it, some of the things you were saying in your argument, and of course we were using the strongest arguments we could find. No, I, I come up with anything better <laughs> no you you did have some strong arguments for it being a trap because it, it is a tool and it's a trap yeah but but literally question, anything that we maybe, can use could become a trap that's true but don't you think social media is not social media technology in general but social media maybe in particular because that's like the edge the leading edge technology right now uh, that's changing our social lives it's changing our lives right even still in ways we don't understand because we don't understand it that makes it more of a trap. Don't you agree with that? Like we know the, the modern automobile has been around for a really long time. We know the dangers. 
social media has been around such a short time, we don't really yet know the dangers. Well, and it's constantly we, changing, so it's impossible to truly get a handle on all of the dangers that it has. Right. The day somebody saw it said, hey, this car can go 100 miles an hour, everybody was like, oh, we got to be careful with that. We, it's, it's not as obvious to our eyes the damage that uh, a kid developing most of their self-worth from their social relationships on Instagram and Snapchat, it's not clear, obviously, to the naked eye, the damage that that's doing. And it's not clear to the naked eye when churches focus solely on online engagement or primarily on online engagement and don't emphasize the life-on-life connections that discipleship requires. So there's a real... um, there's a real care that should be taken, I think, around technology, not because it shouldn't be used, but because it's dangerous in ways we don't fully understand yet. Well, and it's like you just said, when they got the first automobile up to 100 miles an hour, people could immediately say, wow, we got to do something to regulate this. But with social media, it's like, wow, I can reach 100,000 people. We got to do something to expand this. Yeah. And <laughs> How can like, we make money? And, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that in some use cases, but yikes, we also know what else social media is promoted and all this other stuff that you can dig yourself into if you're not careful. Yeah, Josh, I know teenagers who, I know, I know a, a number of teenagers and it is a constant challenge for them. And I, I'll just be honest with you, I believe a lot of them are being as influenced by people that they're watching videos from on Instagram mm-hmm. as they are by their own parents. And, and then think about the fact that how they're not just following one, they're following 10, they're following 15, they're following 20. Ecclesiastes, there's a verse there, he says, the eyes of the fool are in the ends of the earth. In other words, the, ends, the fool doesn't focus on his business. He's, he's, he's all over the place. That was kind of a prophecy about social media if there ever was one. It, what we're doing is we're handing these kids a loaded gun and expecting them to understand how to, how to deal with it. Adults don't even know how to deal with social media yet. And younger and younger children are being given access to the world. We would have never, when the web, when the internet first came out, given children full access to the internet. We would have never done that, but somehow we treat social media differently. And there's, it, there's really just no excuse for it. And, and, and the way that that's shaping the next generation, we can't even quantify it yet. And so tool, yes. Trap also. Yes. I think that's because I think when we at face value, when you see it, it, it seems harmless. Yeah. And, and it's just like anything else. It, whosoever hands it's in is going to determine, is this a tool or is it going to be a trap? And this, it's like what you're saying. The scary thing is, is the people whose hands all of this technology is getting put into have no life experience, have little wisdom, if any. And they're the ones that, are exposing themselves to where when I was a teenager, you know, if this is probably a liberal number, if there were 500 voices that spoke into my life mm-hmm. at one time, now you're like 500 voices a day. Yeah. And, and unlike those voices who your parents could actually look at and say, Oh, I do like that influence. I don't like that influence. They're in no control often of the, of the people that are speaking into kids lives. Well, and even if they try to be in control, you don't know, like that you don't know what your kid's looking at on their friend's phone. Right. Right. It's changed. It's changed. It's changed everything. And I know we're completely out of time on this topic, but I want to say one last thing. 
you're, we have, cause we haven't even touched. And this is something for people to consider is that the creators of these, of these technologies understand the human body in the, in a way that the average person actually does not. And that is the chemical responses of dopamine. They understand how to engage you at a level that's addictive. They're doing it on purpose. Yeah. They know how to design these apps to keep you coming back, to keep you scrolling. I even feel the urge. I feel that anxiety. I feel that urge within me. It's something I have to combat, but I'm a fully grown adult that didn't grow up with social media. So I can sense that and be like, oh, that's not normal. Yeah. What is a kid who's no, he doesn't know what normal is. This is normal for him. We have kids who are being, we're going to keep going on this because it's fun. We have kids literally <laughs> being raised up with brains that are overloaded on dopamine. Oh yeah. Ho completely hyper, hyper. Um, I know what you're trying to say. Hyper stimulation. Yeah all the time and that dopamine constantly hits and they're constantly going back for more and it creates an addict out of them it's like giving a toy simon sinek actually talks about this and says it's like it's like introducing a a, a wine cabinet to an 11 year old and the only difference is we didn't realize it was a wine cabinet when we first did it that's the only difference mm -hmm. but we do now and it's it's time to it's time to realize so that technology can be the trap that it can be and this is where we plug watching the netflix documentary the social dilemma. Still haven't seen it. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> and for our final topic, Clay, we live in a culture talking about social media where we have made pastors who are meant to be shepherds and servants into celebrities. So the question is this, when it comes to celebrity pastors, are they profitable or are they problematic? Josh, uh, I take the position that they're profitable. I'm not saying everything that's enculturated in the culture of celebrity pastorship is profitable, but I do believe there is the tendency to look at somebody who's been successful in ministry and say, oh, I would never do that because you haven't done it. And yet every time somebody's local church grows, the first thing they do is brag to their friends the first thing they do is say, oh, look what God is doing. So it's very tempting to look at somebody who's done a whole lot more than us and say, oh, they're a celebrity pastor. Well, why are they a celebrity pastor? Because they have leveraged their gifts and the resources around them to reach as many people as possible. So it's easy to sit around and say, oh, they're a celebrity pastor. Well, what makes them a celebrity pastor? The amount of reach that they have. The New Testament says that some trees bear tenfold, some bear a hundredfold, some bear a thousand. Well, why is it okay that you're bearing 10 and you're bearing 100, but somebody else can't bear 1,000? So we're going to look at the bigger tree and say, oh, he's doing it wrong because there's so many people listening to him. His book sold so, so many copies. That's because he's a terrible person or that he's a bad pastor. Um, that's a real dangerous practice to get into, judging other men's ministries by the, by the fruitfulness of it. You would never do that with a small church pastor, say, oh, he's obviously a failure because he has no people. That would be a terrible thing to say. So why say the opposite and say because his church is too large that, that he's not doing, that, that, he's, that that's this problematic. You can disagree with their, their polity if you want. You can disagree with their approach. You can say that their methods are wrongheaded if you want. If you're perfect, that's with perfect utility, you could say all of those things. But what I don't think is profitable is looking at, at men who have ministries that are bigger than mine and saying because they've made a certain amount of money or because uh, people watch a certain number of their videos on YouTube that they're unprofitable for the church. Okay, well, Clay, while I agree that we shouldn't have a problem with successful pastors, I would say that celebrity pastors are much different 
than a successful pastor. Because a celebrity pastor is somebody that has been put up onto a pedestal and has been given a position that in our culture leads to, for lack of better terminology, almost worship. Uh, from a very weak standpoint, a weak argument really, that tends to lead to the potential for like a better than you-ism, which obviously a pastor should never have that kind of an attitude. Worse off as we've been seeing exposed time and time and time again in the last several years is that their celebrity pastors, they're able to dodge accountability because of their status, because of who they are, because of their reach and their success. And uh, we've also seen that celebrity pastors have been able to take their status and wield it as a club against the flock to get the things that they want to harm the people that they should be caring for. And truthfully, celebrity pastors is problematic for the church as a whole because it's teaching an entire generation of kids coming up who, who maybe aspire to ministry that a ministry that doesn't look like that, that doesn't have 500,000 Instagram followers and a million Twitter followers and several book contracts, a ministry that doesn't look like that is uh, unsuccessful. And so all, and like you said, they're kind of at the end, all of these little churches out there are going to die on the vine because kids are coming up and going out into the ministry thinking, if my church doesn't have 500,000 people in the first five years, I failed. That's extremely problematic. All right, Josh, I think there's a couple things to dissect here. One is we have to figure out what makes somebody a celebrity pastor. Yes, we do need to to because nail that down. Because if it's is are they a bad are they not profitable because they're a celebrity, or are they, or are they not profitable because of the celebrity? Right. I'm yeah. <laughs> because the question you have to ask is, are they profitable in their context? Let's answer are this they, question. Okay. Is celebrity unprofitable period yes okay so then that i think is where we have to start because i'm not and, and i'm not who, gonna who who determines celebrity i don't think anybody it's it's sort of like the is it just, just like as, a culturally granted status it's i hate to use this illustration because it's a weird illustration but it works in this situation justice brandeis said about pornography when they said had to find pornography he said it's tough to define, but you know it when you see it. I mean, that's not inaccurate when it comes to celebrity. When it comes to celebrity, I feel like that's accurate. I, I don't always, I don't know how to exactly define what makes a celebrity pastor, but you know it when you see it. I think the question is, are they a celebrity because they're famous, just for being famous? Um, like they hang out with celebrities. They're, they're, they're famous for being famous. They're fam Like you know their name because they speak at big conferences. Or are they well known because they have built a long and profitable ministry? I think those are two different things. But I would say that the one who's built a long and profitable ministry is successful. Okay. And but I you don't think I, there's a level of celebrity that often goes sure, in with there, that? Sure, there probably is. But like, I mean any pastor from any size congregation probably has some measure of celebrity okay. to who he is. That's fair. Because he's a pastor. At least to the people that he influences. Yeah. He's, he's in, way, in a way a celebrity to some people, even in, even in a small to middle sized church. Here's my big, here's my big problem with the idea of celebrity pastors. 
Um, I don't have a problem. Like if you're a pastor and you want to build a social media platform and you want to reach people through all of that stuff and write books, dude, do it because that's where people are at. We just talked about that. That's where people are at. That's where we should be trying to reach people. Like that just makes sense. The more I see story after story of these guys who were supposed to be shepherding the flock, turns out they're taking advantage of the flock. They're abusing the flock. And these are the guys who have hundreds of thousands of followers. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't really matter at that point. I, I'm just so frustrated that they would do that to someone that the idea of celebrity pastor, just forget about it. Yeah. I think there's, I think the, the problem of celebrity, although it's not unique to pastors, that's the context we're talking about. The problem of celebrity is linked to the problem of technology that we discussed before. We give these characters way too much influence over us because our hearts are factory of idols, right? Be because we're such idolatrous creatures and because we're not being properly discipled in our local church. So we're, we're taken with these personalities and so our hearts drift and those people command so much more acclaim and so much more popularity and fame. I hate to be this way, but oftentimes the biggest celebrity names we're talking about, the ones that, have, that end up in the news, their celebrity is often not at all linked to actual real ministry success. Right. It's, it's due to branding. It's due to them knowing how to how to brand themselves in the technology space. There's nothing wrong with it, having the gift of knowing how to brand things, but when you use it to brand a person, and you and I both know of churches who where the pastors could be celebrities, yeah, but they don't brand the pastor. They don't do it. They have large churches with huge reach. They're not branding the pastor. You're, they're, they they just don't. I mean, in my view, they don't. And then we see the ones who do, and the ones who do. They get end up with a culture around them where they're not being held accountable. They're they're and they're by the way, their success just becomes based on not obedience, not on long term, not on faithfulness. Their success becomes based on how many baptisms did we get this month? How many attendees did we have in our church services? What was our tithes like? What is the numerical growth of this or that ministry? How many donations did we garner for the charities that we're supporting? That is how we're deciding success. And if that's how we're going to decide success, the problem of celebrity pastors are going to continue because even falsehood can garner a huge following. Lies can 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 grow a huge following. We've seen that over and over again. So I think that the, the, the problem of celebrity is complicated, but that's a major part of it is, are we rewarding pastors for obedience or are we rewarding branding because of people's ability to garner uh, popularity through technology? If I can just say two things and we can, we can close it down because that's our time. Two things. What's worse about the fact that some of these guys are just good br at branding is that they're branding themselves and then trying to smack Jesus on it. Yes. And 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 you can see that, and that is incredibly frustrating Yes, to see. And the other thing I would say is what exacerbates this problem is if you're in a church where your leaders are lifting up a celebrity pastor who may be dead or who may yep. still be alive, yep. lifting somebody up to a point of worship in the service because so-and-so did it this way. I mean, that guy who might've been dead 20 years ago or whatever is just as much a celebrity pastor as Carl Lentz is on the West coast right. right now after getting kicked out of Hillsong, New York. Yeah. And, and let's just say this too. And I, I think this is important just because you're bad at it. 
just because you're bad at branding, so you only can get that accomplished with 150 people instead of 150,000, doesn't make it less wrong yeah. to be branding you instead of pushing Jesus and the gospel and the word of God. I see people in small church contexts doing it too, using, they're not as good at branding as the big guys, but they use the gifts they have and the branding power they do have with the people they have to push up themselves. If you're coming to my church because you want to hear the the teachings that Clay, if you want to hear the Clay Maynard method for raising Christian families, if that's why you show up at my church, I am doing something wrong. I'm branding me. And that's a problem. And I, that happens all over the place. I'm not saying preachers shouldn't have gifting. They absolutely should. And they should use every bit of the gifting that God has given them. But they should constantly be pushing Jesus. And, and there's a lot of them that are good at making it sound like that's what they're doing. But get anywhere close to their, to their sphere of influence and you see it is the them show. Yeah. It is meism. You do it my way. This is how things are going. This is my method. Nobody's doing it as good as me. Nobody knows. I've got the secrets. I've got the, God's talking to me and you need to hear it from me. And that's the problem. And that can happen with celebrity pastors. Like you mentioned, you mentioned before that can happen with celebrity pastors that have national influence or worldwide influence that can happen with pastors that have local influence yeah. in a local church where you are, you are positioning yourself as the answer man instead of pointing to the, to, to the word of God. If Jesus is just a tag, you've, you've screwed up. Yeah. He's Jesus ain't your bumper sticker. Yeah. Word. Well, this has been fun, Josh. This is a great time. I think we were a little concerned about how this would go, but this turned out really well. <laughs> the Young Baptist Pod, the Young Baptist Showdown Part One is complete. So you know what you need to do if you're listening. You need to hit us up with some other topics that we could could do this about again. Yeah, we'd love. It's great to take two different sides, bring in the best arguments from both sides, and suss well, it out a little bit. Maybe the best that we could muster because we disagree <laughs> with the the premises of a whole. But it's a good practice. Yeah, it's been fun, and I I really enjoyed it. So, part two, what que what questions would you like to hear for the Young Baptist Showdown? Part two, maybe part three, we'll get a guest in here who would who'd have Ooh, some fun with it. That would be awesome to have a guest on. Well, Clay, what do you think, man? Unity, not uniformity, Josh. There it is. There it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast. Josh, technology is a tool. Um, You're a tool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought what you were you were using the best arguments, and you brought up hymnals. I didn't know. Like this one is another one. I think it's a trap, but I think it's a tool. It sucks. Yeah. Here, start yours over. Ready. <laughs>